more strange stories here again, calling this one the Cleeter Moor Incident, August 1974. Well, August 1974 saw the UK in an economic mess. It was in recession, with no clear leadership, the two main political parties having no clear majority. There were two elections that year. The country was going broke. This was a time of stagflation, strikes, demonstrations, IRA bombs, corruption and strikes. Power sharing in the Northern Ireland collapsed due to the Unionists. Steel was no longer being produced in Cumbria. McDonald's opened its first branch in the UK. On the plus side, Bagpuss was first broadcast on children's television. Leeds United were football champions and Manchester United were relegated from the top division. On August the 23rd, 1974, the three degrees topped the UK singles charts with When Will I See You Again and Kung Fu Fighting by Carl Douglas had just charted. In the album charts, Band on the Run by Wings was keeping Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield from the top spot. At the cinema, Papillon and The Exorcist were the top films being shown, although the Bruce Lee films were causing young males to karate kick lampposts outside of cinemas. Cleeton Moor is on the edge of the Lake District in Cumbria. It had a long history of Irish immigration and was known as Little Ireland. There had been mining for iron ore, which had caused subsidence and the demolition of buildings in the town. The choice of jobs in the 1970s at Cleeton Moor seemed to be a choice of working at the Marchand Chemical Factory or the Sellafield Nuclear Reprocessing Plant. Margaret Kelly lived at 54 Leakenfield Street, Cleeton Moor. That was the long road which ran through the town and acted as the high street. She had recently turned 15 years of age, but she truanted from school and a care order was made in respect for her and from about March 1974 she was living at Mill Hill Assessment Centre. She then went to a, a hostel at Hensington at Whitehaven but she didn't do very well there and was sent back to the Hill House Assessment Centre, having the occasional weekend at home. Her friend Daphne Corkhill would spend time with her during her weekend home visits. She lived almost opposite at Furness Court, and they spent a lot of time with lads, often older than themselves, whilst wandering around the town. One of the lads that Margaret associated with was Lawrence Corkhill, He was born on the 5th of November 1954 and he lived at 3 Furness Court, Cleeton Moor. He was the cousin of Daphne Corkhill, Margaret's best friend. Corkhill had known Margaret Kelly for about three years. Corkhill had a girlfriend, Jane Shaw, and she played in the West Cumberland Brass Band and she was away with the band during May 1974 when Corkill claimed that Margaret had asked him to go for a walk with her on Cleeton Moor where they had sex. We only have Corkill's word for this. Margaret Kelly was described as being a strong, well-developed girl of her age who was headstrong. Lawrence Corkill had not achieved well at school as he was said to suffer from word blindness which I suppose is a form of dyslexia. 
Corkill could barely read and write. After leaving school, he was a farm labourer, and then he worked at the Marchand's chemical factory as a process worker. On Friday the 23rd of August 1974, Margaret was allowed home leave from Millhouse Assessment Centre and she was brought home by uh, a staff member. At her home at 66 Leakenfield Street, the Long High Street, she met up with Daphne Corkhill. They then went to Overand Hostel at Hensington to pick up some belongings Kelly had left there. It was about an hour's walk. Their movements that day were unknown, but in the evening they were watching television at the Kelly home until it finished around midnight. Then they left the house to walk to a post box to post a letter to Margaret's brother James. The two girls then went to Daphne's home and then Margaret went off by herself as she said she was going to buy a chocolate bar from a vending machine in the town centre and to see what was happening in the area. She was seen talking to a lad in a green combat jacket and later to a couple of lads near her home in Leckenfield Street. She was seen uh, by a man called Mr Brian Crilly who said that Margaret and two lads were talking near the church. On that Friday evening, Lawrence Corkhill went to the Derby Arms Public House at Ennerdale Road, Cleetermore, at about 6.15pm. And there he remained until about 12.45. That's quarter to one in the morning. He'd spent six and a half hours in the pub, playing cards, drinking, socialising. He normally played cards with Thomas Dempsey, his friend who was married, but that night Dempsey was working late, the late shift at Marchand's. Mr Burkett was a barman at the public house who said that Corkhill was at the pub all night until well past midnight. I'm assuming that there must have been a lock-in at the pub as these were supposed to close at 11pm. A lock-in was for regular customers to continue drinking after hours. Sort of grey area of the law. Corkill is thought to have consumed between 6 and 10 pints of lager and 3 pernos. Witnesses said that Corkill had been drinking all night but did not appear to be drunk and his speech was normal. Corkill later said that it was, wasn't unusual for him to drink so much. On his birthday in November 1973, he'd drunk so much that he was charged by the police for being drunk and disorderly. On the Friday night, the 23rd of August, Corkill left the pub late with Derek Riley. They were looking for a chip shop that was still open. But he saw Margaret Kelly on the opposite side of the road and ran across to speak to her. They talked... And Kelly, Margaret Kelly, said, do you want to go for a walk at Shilly's? Which Corkill understood to be, let's go and have some sex. The Shilly's was a popular place for young couples to go to be alone, near the allotments. The time was 1.45am or thereabouts. We know this because a police uh, van patrolling a little earlier saw Margaret Kelly. He knew her and he stopped to speak to her and to advise her to go home. A few minutes later, the police officer, Ken Hutchinson, returned on patrol and then he saw Margaret was talking to two men. A few minutes later, he returned and saw one man, Derek Riley, was still there. He spoke to Riley and advised him to get away home. The police officer then drove to the garage area to inspect it. That was fairly close to the allotment gardens. 
and the officer, Ken Hutchinson, saw Corkhill and Margaret Kelly on the path walking down towards the allotment gardens. Corkhill had his left arm around the waist of Kelly, and she seemed to be going quite winningly. The time was about five to two in the morning. The last Daphne Corkill had seen of Margaret Kelly was her going off to post her letter and to get a Kit Kat from the vending machine. Daphne had gone to bed when she got home. Later in the early hours of the morning of Saturday the 24th of August, Mrs Kelly, Margaret's mother, came to the house searching for her daughter. Daphne said it was possible that Margaret had gone off to spend the night with a friend for whom she used to babysit at some stage. Mrs Kelly then went away and Daphne went went uh, back to bed. Daphne said she'd been in her bedroom for about two minutes when she heard screaming and shouting from the allotments. She got out of bed and went to the window that overlooked the allotments and looked out but could see nothing. However, she said she still heard shouting and screaming and one of the voices sounded like Margaret shouting, I won't! Come over here! The shouting had been going on for about ten minutes but stopped shortly after she got to the window. Daphne said that she went down to wake her mother up and then woke her brother Christopher and persuaded Christopher to go with her to the bathroom. That had a window overlooking the allotments. The two of them looked out and they still saw nothing. Then they both went back to bed. Later in court, when the events of the night were examined in detail, Mrs Kelly said that she had gone to the Corkhill house, that's Daphne's house, at about 2.30am. She knocked on the door and couldn't get an answer. It was also suggested in court that the screaming Daphne heard could have been lurcher dogs that chase hares and the hares scream like women. Another curious piece of evidence came from a neighbour, a Mrs McCleary. She said that it was between 2.30 and 3am that morning and she was in her back kitchen adding cosmetics to her face. There was to be a wedding the next day which she was going to. She said that she heard some unearthly moaning. Then it was three different voices. She said that she had heard no sound on earth like that. It did not seem to her to be human. She said that it reminded her of the groan that her mother made when she died. 6am on the Saturday morning, a Mr Southward went to the allotments and found the naked body of a girl, which was Margaret Kelly. Clothes were scattered around the body. The police were called and the area was sealed off whilst they made their investigations. At 9.30am, Lawrence Corkhill got out of bed. He and his father and his brother-in-law, who was called Neville Bain, planned to do some work on the roof of the house. They wanted to cement around the chimney and replace some loose tiles. Slates. Corkle had said nothing to his father about his late night and what he'd been up to. As he and his brother-in-law worked on the roof, they saw all the police activity where the police had taped the area on the path leading down to the allotments. At dinner time, the, they had sandwiches and discussed the police action that they'd seen. As they did so, Corkhill's sister, Mrs Annie Bain, called around and told them that a girl had been kicked to death and it was thought to be the Kelly lass. Lawrence Corkhill said nothing, just kept eating his sandwiches. Corkhill went back to work on the roof with his brother-in-law, while his father, Mr Corkhill, mixed concrete at the bottom of the ladder. 
Later, Corkill had told the police that he had been informed, although he did not say by whom, that he had been told by the police that had been told that the police were investigating the death of a woman who was aged between 35 and 45. 4pm that afternoon the police arrived and Lawrence Corker was told to come down. His mother had been to Whitehaven that day and she returned about the same time as the police and said that the murdered girl was Margaret Kelly. Corker was sat in the police car outside of his house with Sergeant Graham and Inspector Fellows. Detective Sergeant Graham told him the nature of the inquiry. He said they wanted to see Corkill about an incident at Cleeter Moor the previous night and that they were going to go to Whitehaven Police Station. The police took all of Corkill's clothing with them. In the car, Sergeant Graham said that he said to Corkill, You are not obliged to say anything unless you wish to do so, but what you may say will be put in writing and may be given in evidence. He said, I'm arresting you in connection with the death of a girl at Cleeter Moor last night. Graham said that Corkill replied, I haven't seen her for two months. Then the officer said to him, I haven't said who it is yet. Corkill said, it's Margaret Kelly. I've been working on our roof this morning and I could see you all working, putting tape around the path down to the allotments. Anyway, she lives just across from us. I've known her a long time. Later, Corkill said that he was not cautioned until 7pm that evening by the police. Corkill was interviewed by uh, Detective Chief Inspector Taylor and Sergeant Graham in the police station at Whitehaven, where he claims he was still not cautioned by the police. Corkill's statement does seem rather suspect. It was a long interview. Corkill explained how he was in the Derby Arms pub that night and the last thing he remembered was waking up in bed that morning as he had drunk so much the previous evening. He said the last time that he drunk so much he'd ended up in hospital. In a later interview though, he explained how he'd been drinking all evening in the Derby Arms and left with Derek Riley. He said that he had met with Margaret Kelly, although he claimed he'd drunk so much he wasn't certain it was her. He actually said it might have been her but I wouldn't do her any harm. She's a nice lass. The police officer then said to him, I think you remember being with Margaret Kelly and that you remember exactly what happened. Then the officer said there was silence for about a minute. And in the course of that silence, Corkill said to Sergeant Graham, said that Sergeant Graham said to him, we have other ways to make you talk. It seemed like a threat to Corkill. The police said that then Corkill said that he was with Margaret Kelly. According to the police, Corkill said, it was her fault. In his words, Corkill said, she asked me to go for a walk with her and I did. We went down the park and she took all her clothes off and I had intercourse with her. It was her idea. When I'd finished, I got up to go away, but she pulled me back down to do her again. I just knocked her off. Then she stood up and called me all the effing bastards and C-U-N-T's there was, so I blocked her one with my fist. She went down, I lost my temper, I can't stand folk swearing at me, so I just started kicking her. I couldn't stop myself, I kicked her a few times in the face and a lot of times in the chest. Later Corkill said that he only kicked her once in the face and twice in the ribs, but the police insisted that he said that he kicked 
hit her a few times in the face and lots of times in the chest. Corkill said that the police kept asking him, asking him if he'd done anything else to her. Corkill replied that he could not remember and it all went black, blank until he woke up the next day. The police asked him, was Margaret dead when you left her? Corkill said he didn't know, she was unconscious. The officer said to him, when she was lying on the ground unconscious after you kicked her, did you do anything else to her? Corkill answered, everything was just a blank, I can't remember a thing and that's the truth. Corkill said several times they did not like swearing, I don't like people swearing at me. He could take just so much, but once he was called a C-U-N-T or a bastard, he would just go mad. Police inquiries later asked workmates and friends if he got upset with people swearing, especially at him. But nobody could ever recall this being an issue with Corkhill. Evidence from Mr Boderick, his leading hand, said that Corkhill's reaction to swearing was normal and that he was quick to lose his temper. Corkhill's ex-girlfriend, Jane Shaw, said that he did not use very bad language, just everyday swearing, and his reaction to swearing by others was, well, nothing in particular. Corkhill told police he was wearing platform boots. These were a fashion disaster in the early 1970s, which made all that wore them about six inches taller, with high heels and thick soles. If kicked with platform boots, they could cause some damage, much worse than ordinary shoes. They would have been like huge blunt weapons. According to the police, when at the police station giving his evidence, Corkhill said that he had no intention to kill Margaret and he was sorry that it happened. He later said that this sentence was suggested to him by Detective Chief Inspector Taylor, who said that it may sound better for him when it went to court if he was to say he was sorry. Corkill later complained that although he'd signed the statement, it was written by a police officer, as he couldn't really write. He had not been cautioned, although the police said he had been cautioned, and because he had word blindness, he had not been given time to read the statement or have it read to him by an independent person. There may have been some truth in Corkill's complaints. This was the mid-1970s when the police thought that if they had somebody for an offence, they would cut corners, which is the reason the reason that PACE was made into law. PACE was the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, 1984, known as PACE. This is the reason why no comment is now the usual response to any police questions until the defence can come up with a strategy to uh, defend their client. If you get arrested by police, your solicitor will always suggest that you say no comment until he understands the whole story. Anyhow, Corkhill was saying that the police kept asking him that after he'd knocked Margaret down, did he do anything else? This was because pathology had said that Margaret's death had been the result of strangulation. When asked if he did anything else, Corkhill just answered that he was unable to remember. After the statement had been made, the accused was charged with murder and he was cautioned that he did not need to say anything and Corkhill agreed that the caution was given to him at about 7.45 that Saturday evening. Corkhill was to later say that although Margaret Kelly had been killed by a kick to the face, well, that's what he thought, he did not realise that the cause of death had been strangulation. Corkhill also said that he expressly told the police that he only kicked the girl three times. 
Then he hit her in, a f- in the face with his fist, and this blow might have busted her nose or lip. And when she was down, he kicked her once in the face and twice in the ribs. It seemed that Corker was saying that although he had attacked Margaret Kelly, for whatever reason, somebody else must have come up afterwards and strangled her. If we are to believe what Corker was said, this unknown person that supposedly met up with Margaret Kelly must have kicked her at least six more times before strangling her, as the pathology report said that she was delivered nine blows in all, which could have been given by a foot, a fist or a blunt instrument. There was another incident that came up in court when the case was heard in December 1974. Corkhill was being held on remand at Durham Jail. When he was being driven to the jail by Detective Constable Melvin from Whitehaven, going to Durham Prison, on the journey the officers said that they were talking mainly about football. Melvin said that Corkhill, on reflection on what was happening to him, told Melvin, It does take a lot to make me lose my temper. And if she hadn't sworn at me, I wouldn't have done it. When the case came to court, a forensic specialist commented that there was very little tearing to the panties, which were the only clothing left on the body, when it was found. He said that in sexual assault cases, you usually find more tearing of the panties that was found in this particular case. As far as Mel Seaman was concerned, the swabs taken for the vagina of the young Kelly girl showed no signs of it at all so you may well take the view that full intercourse had not taken place. Margaret's brassiere and tights had been made up together into a ligature which had been used to strangle her. There were fibres from Margaret's clothing on Corkill's clothing, although this was no surprise as they'd been seen together an arm in arm. Margaret's hairs were found on Corkill's platform boots. Dr Woodcock, a home office pathologist, said that in his judgment, death of the Kelly girl had taken place between 1am and 3am. Secondly, he said that death was caused by strangulation and not by the other blows. There were seven blows at least to the head, probably more, and there were at least two heavy blows to the front of the body, making nine in all. He said that these could have been made by a fist, a blunt instrument or by a boot. So far as the girl's private parts were concerned, there was no evidence of violent sexual intercourse. And he said it was quite obvious from the examination that uh, the young girl was habitual to sexual intercourse. Corkill's version was that after he had sex with Margaret, he withdrew and the semen that he produced went onto the grass. He got up to go and walk away, but she started to pull him back and ask him for some money. She wanted £5, Corkill claimed. She said she was scared of somebody and she wanted to run away. Corkill then said that he told her he was not going to give her any money because he was not going to help her run away from the school that she'd been at. An interesting point here is that Corkill had not mentioned that Margaret Kelly was asking for money in any of his previous statements. It was first mentioned during the court case. Corkill said then she started swearing. She called me all the C-U-N-T's and bastards under the sun. I told her that I did not like people swearing at me. She called me a bastard, a C-U-N-T and a twat. He later told her to stop swearing at him, but allegedly she kept on swearing. Corkill said he lost his temper and hit her. She went down, he kicked her once in the face, twice in the ribs, three times in total. 
he explained that he had his platform boots on. Then he walked away. When the case went to court, there were other suggestions as to what triggered Corkill's actions on Margaret Kelly. It was suggested that it could be that Kelly was unwilling to have sex with him. Or perhaps she had made fun of him when he was unable to have sex with her after the amount of alcohol he had consumed, and a girl of 15 during at his performance may have been too much for him to take. In court, Corkill claimed that he was sexually active. He had sex with eight or nine girls since he last had sex with Margaret in the May, and as a consequence he was unable to remember details of sexual encounters that he had had with Kelly. In court, Corkill was unable to answer a number of questions put to him, and his story clearly changed since he was charged with the murder. The prosecution said to Corkill that it seemed that he had an injured girl, perhaps standing up screaming at him at 2am in the morning, and that was going to cause trouble. What could you do? Run away and leave her screaming? Or stop her screaming by putting something around her throat? Corkill said that after he had attacked Kelly, she was lying on the ground and she might have been unconscious, or she might have been pretending to be unconscious when he left her. He went back home. When he got back to the house, he said he had completely cooled down. He was then asked a question. Well, you left the girl naked on the allotments a short distance from your house. Why not go back to see if she was all right? You'd only kicked her three times, according to you. Corkill said, Why should I go back? If she'd been conscious, she would have been up and away. Then I would have walked down there for no reason at all. The prosecution suggested it was because Corkhill knew she was dead and he did not want to risk being seen in the area. Corkhill was suggesting to the court that it was possible that Margaret put her clothes back on and went back onto the moor after being kicked in the face and elsewhere. And she'd met up with somebody else, then went back to the same place where she'd been assaulted by Corkhill and there she was strangled by this other person. It seemed that the defence by this time had given up on Corkill's chances of avoiding a guilty verdict. They were now going to try for a plea of diminished responsibility. Discussions centred around the fact that if Corkill had been responsible for Margaret's death, had she done something or said something that had provoked Corkill into losing his self-control, and on sudden impulse he had attacked and killed her? Could this be in a case of diminished responsibility? If so, this is the defence to the charge of murder, but here the burden of proof rests on the defence. Diminished responsibility means suffering from an abnormality of the mind that impairs mental responsibility. The defence called upon a consultant in psychological medicine who had examined Corkill in prison and whose tests proved inconclusive although he thought that his drunkenness at the time of the murder may have been a factor in his actions and it was clear that Corkill had a violent temper. Another consultant psychologist or psychiatrist, I beg your pardon, at Carlisle Hospital had given evidence that he thought Corkill was an aggressive psychopath with the possibility of epilepsy who also suffered from retarded emotional development. He also said that drink had impaired Corkill's mental responsibility at the time. A doctor that the prosecution called to give evidence concluded that Corkill was not suffering from any abnormality of the mind, that there was no impairment of his mental responsibility for the act of killing the girl. I don't think there was much surprise when Corkill was found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment. However, 
As normal in these cases, I can find no further information on Corkhill. He seems to have totally disappeared. There's nothing in the police files regarding to which jail he'd been sent to, or if he appealed. Lawrence Corkhill would be 69 years of age today. The Copeland Council, which was created in April 1974, is responsible for the governance of Cletamore. They have been recently allocated money from the Leveling Up Fund for around and around £20 million have been allocated to Cletamore. They have been putting out publicity videos suggesting that Cletamore is a wonderful place to visit for shopping or just paying a visit. Other videos posted online suggest that the area still has problems. One pointing out that Cletamore today has 14 fast food outlets for its population of around 7,000 inhabitants. That's one fast food shop for each 500 of the local population. This attracted the uh, comment from somebody. Cletamore is not a place to visit or to shop. You must be joking unless you want a mediocre curry, a kebab or a Chinese. The best thing about Cletamore is the road out. Have you never been there? I can't possibly comment. Anyhow, I'd like to thank Damselfly for providing the background music. I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, I'll say goodbye. Goodbye.